0: discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast
1: i'm only happy when it rains oh and also when i'm listening to the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank my friends in the band garbage for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling If you want to feel old, that album came out 25 years ago. Anyway, my name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Uh, Follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam, and guys fighting with chairs will pop up. I want to thank everyone for putting up with the last two episodes where I was breathing loudly into the microphone. Chris Tabar was giving me, you all, good information. In the background, there's like a hurricane going on because I'm breathing into the mic. We're going to try not to have that happen this week. So, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. And I do know that there are some good podcasts out there, but I think there's only one wicked good podcast. Sam Kennison, do you think there's another wicked good podcast out there?
0: Yeah, she said no fucking way.
1: Okay, Sam. Chill out, man. I want to bring in uh, our—let me first plug our Facebook group, and there's a good reason to do that. We are having a fantasy tournament, 1991 Crockett Cup. We're down to the finals. Rick and Scott Steiner against Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. By the time you hear this, that'll be over, but there will be other ones. If you want to just hang out and talk wrestling or if you have a question, go to Facebook, search Stick to Wrestling, and it'll come up. And we have interactive shows like the one coming up today. It is nothing but questions from our Facebook audience. And with that, I want to welcome back to the show, Sean Heimberger. Sean, you were great last time. It's good to have you back.
0: Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me back. Uh, Always enjoy the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. So, yeah, we did nothing but take questions from our Facebook audience. I think this is going to be a two-parter. So some of the questions are going to get answered this week. And if they don't get answered this week, they will get answered next week. Here we go. Christian Body, friend of the show. Everyone's a friend of the show. What am I talking about? But she, she, Christian's been on before, and he'll be on again. Sean, what if Tully and Arn never left the NWA?
0: We would have gotten one of the greatest feuds of all time against the Midnight Express. That, how badly were we cheated by that?
1: Very badly. That feud was just getting rolling when Tully and Arn decided that they were leaving.
0: Now, what would they have done after that to top it? Uh, well, that's a little little harder to say. But boy, we would have gotten six months to a year of maybe the best tag team matches of all time.
1: That is a good point, and that's something that largely gets forgotten about because they built up that feud slowly with Jim Cornette and you know coming out and saying, "Well, you know, we can't win the tag team titles because no one will give us a shot." I remember those words coming out of his mouth and being like, whoa, wait a minute, because I hadn't heard anything about, you know, a Midnight's versus Horseman feud. And then, yeah, it slowly got rolling, and I think it would have been great. But on the other hand, I think Tully and Arn were really, really stale in the NWA. They had been on WTBS for like almost four years by that point. I think the whole Horseman thing had been run into the ground. The promotion was not doing well, and I know they left thinking that, you know, if if JCP closes down, Vince can't take everyone. So they had an offer for Vince, and they took it.
0: I just think as good as that run would have been against Cornette and the Midnight's, which would have been phenomenal. The parallel for me would be: look at what the Midnight's did after Tully and Arn left. You would have had a champion or champions in this case, and they would have had a. Drop in competition, either like the Midnight's with with the Fantastics for a while. I think as phenomenal as that six months to a year run would have been, it would have been straight down into a stagnant plateau after that. Yeah, I
1: mean the Midnight's were were clearly turning babyface. They were you know the baby faces in the feud, even though people liked the Horsemen, they they liked the Midnight's as well, and Jim Cornette, I think. It's hard to have a babyface manager. Like, it just doesn't work. But Cornette did as good a job as anyone could possibly do in that role.
0: I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, it, it too often if you're a, a babyface manager, you get stuck in the, I can't really interfere because then that quote-unquote makes me the heel. But yet that's what you expect a manager to do. So you have to kind of sneak around and every once in a while kind of, pinch the heel in the ass a little bit to get the, you know, just enough to get the fans happy. Oh yeah. He's still doing, now he's doing the stuff to the guys that we don't like, right. But it 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 has to be such an immensely hard role to pull off.
1: Yeah. The Horsemen. like I said, I've, I've said this on the show before. I think the horsemen were, were so stale and that the promotion either needed to go in a, di- a different direction or they needed to turn the horseman baby face which with Tully Blanchard, that would have been tough. I think he could have pulled it off, but Arn could be a babyface. I question whether Tully could be a
0: babyface. You literally stole that statement right out of my mouth. (laughs) I would have said Tully Blanchard has almost zero chance. What made him so come across the screen so strongly was it felt real that this was a guy that behind the scenes was probably a bit of a pain in the ass. I love the guy, but that's where a wrestling fan would probably say, You could feel the authentic. It was so authentic from Tully Blanchard. And I'm not sure he could have really pulled that off unless it was a full-fledged horseman turn and he's kind of like in the not featured as much, kind of in the background. Arn, you're absolutely right. He could always be the ass kicker and that would be no problem at all to fly. Uh, That would be the main thing that I would see the problem with that. I'm not sure Tully, I don't think it would feel authentic is what I'm saying if Tully was a babyface, because frankly, he's just not. I think, you
1: know what, I think there's a chance that the fans would have cheered him anyway because they, they cheer the bad guys. Now he's a bad guy, but he's in the role of a babyface, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, sure. That's the what's behind every time somebody turns, is you want to see the guy that you hated, now he's going to do the things that you want to see done to the people that you also hate.
1: Exactly. I, I saw Tully as a babyface in Southwest, like we're talking 77, 78, and it's, it's just not his role. I mean, he was out there with the greatest heel or one of the greatest heels of all time, Terry Funk, and Tully totally just looked clunky in that babyface role.
0: Well, and, and I don't watch the current product. I got to be honest and fair. But my son sent me a clip of the other night with Tully Blanchard. He said, you got to spend five minutes and watching this. And I watched this five minute clip of Tully and Arn and the rock and roll express in the ring with I, I, the young bucks and somebody else. I, 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 I'm sorry if I sound so dated, but it's true. I don't, I don't really watch it, but I watched that. And as soon as Tully cut in and commented and talked for about 45 seconds, it captivated you. It grabbed you. It felt authentic. It felt real. And then of course they were, then they pulled you right back out of that, but by doing something else, but. For that 45 seconds when he was speaking, you felt that this was, hey, you know what? Maybe there's more to this. And when you could suspend that disbelief and and it feels real, they got you. Yeah, I
1: wish there was an alternative universe where Tully's career did not essentially end at the end of 1989. He was so good at what he did. The problem is now we're down to just two wrestling companies that are remotely major league by that point. He was clearly no longer welcome in the WWF. WCW had all of the leverage, and Tully just wasn't going for it.
0: One of the things that I really have— you guys have a much more expansive tape collection than I do, but the advent of YouTube puts everything at your fingertips. And some of the stuff that I really enjoy, and there's more and more of it going up between YouTube and WWE Network, is the Tully Blanchard with the heel Wahoo McDaniel. I I think that is some of the most— underrated stuff that you can see where Tully's egging on the veteran. Who's just angry. And he's, I've never got my shot against my so-called friend and wearing the headdress with, with the three piece suit. And that is such underrated stuff. I wish it would have gone on a little longer. I don't think it could have lasted forever, of course, but that was such underrated stuff. And it, of course, the, the horseman was right around the corner because they knew what they were going to eventually do with Flair, but it also feel, felt like we kind of got robbed a little bit of Tully versus Flair, which I think could have been really huge both in the ring and behind the microphone.
1: I was thinking about that today. You know, what if Ric Flair had turned babyface and they put him up against Tully Blanchard? My initial thought was, well, I don't buy Tully Blanchard as a threat to the world's heavyweight championship. Sorry. Then I was like, well, I didn't buy Killer Khan or George the Animal Steel or Buddy Rose as legit contenders, but I went to the matches anyway.
0: Well, the one thing that Crockett always did in creating that underrated aspect of legitimacy is Tully Blanchard had beaten Magnum T.A. He had beaten Dusty Rhodes. Now, granted, he lost back to those guys, but he had established that. On one night, on a certain occasion, if the cards are right and he's got the right people interfering and in the right scenario, he could pull it off. And when you have that particular aspect of it only takes one time, it only takes one time to hit the jackpot in Las Vegas when you pull that slot machine forward. <laughs> and I, been, oh, go ahead. I think if they would have played it like that, say, look, look. I don't have to beat you. Have to walk away with the belt every night. I only have to beat you once. The stars can align properly, and then he's a devious little guy, and he's got JJ Dillon running around. Or before that, with Wahoo, I think it could have done very well, and I and I think people would have bought it had they had they said. Certainly, I'm not the wrestler Ric Flair is. Although I'm very skilled, he's much bigger than I am. He's stronger than I am. Blah blah blah. But I am smart and I'm a devious little guy, and all it takes is one time.
1: That is an excellent point, and you know what? I was actually stunned 35 years ago when Tully Blanchard won the United States title for Magnum TA because I didn't see him as that big a star, but by the time that feud was over, by the time they had the I Quit match, I believed in Tully Blanchard. I saw him as a wrestler that you know was good enough to be the United States champion. He got over.
0: Yeah. To me, the Magnum win gave the credibility that he probably never would have gotten otherwise. Cause, I mean, look, Dusty is Dusty, but guys had beaten Dusty before temporarily in order to create an angle and prolong a program, et cetera. But when he beat Magnum, then people took him seriously. This guy can... Do this if things work right. I and mean, yes, Magnum's better. Yes, Magnum's stronger. Yes, he's got to bring in Baby Doll, and he's got to do this. He's got. But that one night, that win gave him credibility for the rest of his career.
1: I agree with you. All right, Brad Breitman, ask how big was the ring in Kansas City? Do you have this information?
0: Ah, uh, you know what? I have to. I have to be honest with you. I have not the most up on Kansas City wrestling. Other than I saw that really good documentary, uh, the one a couple years ago where Harley Race talked about how they nonstop sold a place out that generally had 100 people in it. (laughs) Uh, But I I can't honestly answer that one.
1: I'll let you take that one. uh, the, The lighting in the arena was so dark that I couldn't even see the ring, so I don't know. Jeff Souza, what if Dynamite Kid does not demand that the British Bulldogs drop the belts to the heart's? Instead of Sheik and Volkov. Uh, does Brett's career ever, never take off? What do you think?
0: I think it would be very difficult for him to. The credibility in that title run, although credibility in the WWF is different from that of the territories. That was the first step of Brett being brought up the line, that of being taken seriously. <sighs> I, I would go as far as to say I don't think he ever wins a WWF title without that. Huh. Unless unless the eventual plan is was down the road, perhaps the Hart Foundation, they had plans for them for a title. I, I don't think Brett ever wins the WWF title if the Hart Foundation never wins the tag titles.
1: Uh, you see, I this is good because we're not going to have the same answer. I think Brett's trajectory would have largely been the same. I mean, if, I don't even remember this story. I, I mean, it might be true. I haven't read Dynamite's book in exactly 11 years. But let's say this is this is true. I think Brett has the same trajectory. I think he turns babyface in 88. He eventually gets out of the tag team. Vince sees something in him. And, you know, every time Brett won a title, I was taken aback. I mean, I was surprised when the Hart Foundation won the tag team titles because they'd been around. To me, they'd been around a long time and they just never got past that glass ceiling. I was shocked when I learned that Brett was going to win the Intercontinental title from Kurt Henning, I found out beforehand. And then one day I'm at work, and then a guy who's a fellow wrestling fan comes up to me and says, hey, did you hear who won the WWF title? I'm like, "What? Well, no, and he's Brett Hart. And I was, I was stunned that he won the title from Ric Flair. So, I mean, it's one of Vince's greatest, what's the word I'm looking for? It's one of his best things, his attributes. There you go. That if he sees someone he wants to push, he's going to push them, and he's going to keep pushing them until they get over.
0: Well, don't take that as I dislike Bret Hart. I, I'm I'm one of the Bret Hart is better than Shawn Michaels guys. So oh, uh, same here. It seems like we're in a minority. But my only thing was is when I look back at that up until that point, they didn't really take Bret all that seriously, and I'm sure that could have developed over time. But that does make me think. Like you said, and that's a legitimate point, that the Hearts had seemingly been there for a while and had never really been considered championship timber in storyline fashion. Right. But just by winning that gave them credibility, and it makes me wonder, would they have had plans to eventually put the title on them? And uh, it was the best thing for the company because, you know, Brett's clearly terrific. I'm a huge Brett Hart fan. No,
1: same here. Uh, I mean, talking about Brett versus Sean, a lot of people, Sean started doing these ridiculous bumps when he turned heel, and some of the people, like in the newsletter community, was like, "Oh wow, what a great bump!" And my take is, "Oh wow, what a
0: phony looking bump." I would tend to agree, and and sometimes when you're an innovator, you get more credit at the time than you probably deserve. Yeah, and then do, how well does it wear? I mean, you, we look back now, 25 years later, and, and say. Well, Sabu was innovative at his time, and now you look back and you go, oh, not so much. (laughs) May have been innovative, but wasn't all that great. And and I certainly am not taking anything away from Shawn Michaels. I I just felt that it was the beginning of the transition towards, as you said, the big bumper compared to the classic in ring worker. But, you know, it's all in, this is a sports slash sports entertainment that is all subjective. I'm a rare person that if you told me which one, I would rather watch a Dory Funk match than a Terry Funk match. That's a probably I'm in the minority there, but it's a subjective thing. But I think people watched Michaels doing some crazy stuff, for, especially crazy for that company, which when, you know, their in the ring stuff was very oftentimes plotting. And it's, oh, wow, this is different. So therefore, and, and oftentimes different is equated with good or great.
1: Yeah, I mean sometimes less is more and I can tell you that today the guys get in the ring and they do a lot more, but sometimes when you do all that it doesn't mean anything. One other quick observation, I mean I remember in nineteen ninety two, my friends and I were watching the Survivor series. And it was Brett defending the WWF title against Shawn Michaels. And all of my friends were like, These guys, these are the tag team guys. What are they doing in the main event? And I'm trying to explain, look, you know, sometimes A a baseball player. Like, okay, he was in the minor leagues three years ago, but now he's an all-star. He's like that. And they're like, no, wrestling's different. And it's like that almost cast a a negative shadow on them.
0: Now, that was the one from Richfield Coliseum, am I right? You are right. I'm not always the greatest with the dates and the years like you guys are, but I I thought I remembered that. That's the Richfield Coliseum one where Michaels comes off the, leaps off the top rope and Brett catches, turns him into the sharpshooter all in one move. I thought that was great. But you're exactly right. The problem with that was is you had two guys that were not considered by the average person to be, they weren't Hulk Hogan, they weren't Macho Man, and a lot of times it takes time to reach that. Like you said, the minor league baseball analogy is great. When you call that guy up, very seldom do you call a guy up and he's an instant all-star. There's a process. And Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels each had to mature on the vine a little bit. They had to move along. They had to develop. They had to develop moving from tag team wrestler to mid-card to intercontinental level. To It's part of the maturation process. And sometimes when you finally reach that maturation process, you've got to hope that the people are ready to accept that. And I think they were ready to accept those guys as stars, but it was still they had been fed for... 10 years of Hulk Hogan and Bob Backlund on top, and all of a sudden these guys had been wrestling the killer bees and demolition, and there was a process of fan acceptance. And once they accepted it, everything was great.
1: I I agree with you, and as a matter of fact, I think the mistake was that they had two guys that were on the rise in the same match. I think it should have been, you know, Bret Hart against Ric Flair, and let's see Bret Hart beat Ric Flair, and then we'll put Shawn Michaels out there.
0: Now that is a legitimate argument that I still to this day can't understand the what the opposite argument would be. Why the I, I get why the title change was in Bret Hart's home territory. I know it was, mm-hmm. it was Saskatoon, right? Yes. Uh, why that was put on tape for one of their Coliseum videos instead of at least being shown on a Saturday night's main event or something that they could have. That would have been huge because everybody knew Ric Flair, accepted Ric Flair. Hey, this guy beat Ric Flair. Even when you got the news of it, you didn't get the entire effect because you didn't see it. Uh, it's I, like you know reading I something in a it. newspaper. It's, uh, you read something in a newspaper, you don't get the same effect as you do if you see it on television.
1: You're 100% correct. That is an excellent observation. Uh, let's go to this one. John Metler, thank you for the question. What if DiBiase was given the NWA title in 1981 instead of Ric Flair?
0: Ah, I, you know, I read that question and I thought about that, and I've been back and forth because, if I recall correctly, wasn't the original plan around that time that they were going to do like a three-tier thing where DiBiase, Flair, and Dusty would would kind of have like the modern day brisco funk thing, except for there'd be three of them where any of them were capable of winning at a certain time. One guy might have it for six months. Another guy might have it for nine months along those lines. I've always liked Ted DiBiase, but when I watch that stuff of him, Babyface in Georgia, he's like, to me, I find him as a, not, not in the ring, but he, he comes off so dull, duller than dishwater. <laughs> and I, I think he would have had times in wrestling were changing, whether we liked it or not. And I'm not sure to a national audience that the Jack Briscoe, Bob Backlund, humble baby face would have flown. I think he could have done fine as he traveled, but on TBS, I'm not sure that would know, – the people watching nationally might not have accepted that. It might have been hard to, hard to fly.
1: Here, here's what I heard a long time ago. Now, this, like I said, this is just what I heard that Ted DiBiase, the the NWA sent Ted DiBiase to Georgia to put him on WTBS to get a big push and make him a credible NWA champion. They had a goal of putting the title on him. And supposedly, Robert Fuller was the booker, and Dusty got in Robert Fuller's ear and said, hey, you know, don't give this guy the the right push. And he's out there feuding with the Freebirds, teaming with Robert Fuller, and what's his name? Stan Frazier. And that's not the push that an NWA champion gets before getting the title. So my take—I remember my take in '81 was that Ted DiBiase just wasn't "quote unquote" good enough to be NWA champion. I know better now, but he was a mid-carder with the WWF just two years later, which I think kind of worked against him, or to me, it worked
0: against him. In the ring, he was sensational even then. But what I would have probably questioned if I would have been. In nineteen eighty one, knowing what I know now, uh, I would have probably looked at that and said, Okay, is he going to be able to travel as the heel? Because at that time he'd never been a heel. So you had no. questions about that. The NWA champion had to go into different markets and make sure that their challenger, you were you were the heel. Because of course everyone wanted their, their guy to win. Could he do that? Turned out he could, but you didn't know that then. At that time, I think had they had they ran with DiBiase in 81, I, I'm not sure it would have been a successful run. If they would have done it later on, like, say, if they would have had some type of run in the 83-84 time period, which, you know, theoretically, if he was they decided to do that, he was more mature as a wrestler. He was more mature. He looked like a man instead of a young up-and-coming guy. And he had proven that he could be the nasty heel that sometimes the NWA champion needed to be.
1: Well, here's the thing: Jack Briscoe was a babyface when he was the NWA champion, but he knew how to do. And Jazz did this too. He knew how to do like the what is kind of like the the sneaky sort of semi-healy stuff and get away with it. Like I, I think DiBiase could have pulled that off. But like I said, to me the negative was that he was on national television on WOR, which had you know major cable penetration just two years earlier and he was not portrayed as a star in the wwf but DiBiase was great i think had they gone ahead and put the title on him in 81 i think it would have worked out
0: i'll take your word for it that's <laughs> the kind of guy i am <laughs> All you right. convinced me you talked me into it
1: christian bode once again has a question and this is a big one what if bill watts gets the wtbs time slot instead of crockett now We've discussed this on the show before, but this is why we have Sean on. He's going to give us his opinion. It's going to be different than the ones that have have been previously expressed.
0: We'll see about that. Uh, To me, I think the end result would have been the same. Uh, The end game of eventually going out of business slash selling to Turner. But I think at that time, most of those guys, with the arguable exception of a little bit of Ted DiBiase, hadn't been overexposed on national television yet. And as good as the Crockett shows were, the Watt shows were really, their television shows were really exciting and top-notch. I think they may have even had a higher peak as far as television ratings than Crockett over time, but I'm not sure the end results change strictly because of the problems with Watt. At that time, the oil prices were in in the sewer. There was uh, losing money, you know, like a gushing faucet. I think that probably would have been the main reason that it would have ended the way it. I think the end result's the same, but we would have gotten some really cool television on the, on our way to getting there.
1: If someone came to me, if a, a god had come to me and said, okay, I'm going to change one thing in wrestling history, what would you like it to be? I would say Watts gets the spot on WTBS because Crockett. And this was just his style. He acted like the WWF didn't exist, okay? That his product was in a vacuum, and that was the end of it. Bill Watts was not like that. He had no problem criticizing the WWF on the air. He had no problem with having Jim Ross make fun of the the chair that Don Morocco broke over Ricky Steamboat's back. I mean, he would have gone right after the WWF, and I think his television was beyond exciting, Vince had a lot of advantages, I'm not ignoring that. He definitely, he was in a New York market, and he knew how to act, not just regionally, but nationally and internationally. But I think the result could have been different. Uh, Like I said, I I wish there was a way we would know for sure.
0: I would say the one thing that could have made it different, and I've read different things, and, and you never know what to believe when you read something after all. Yeah. That supposedly Bill Watts had somewhat of a casual relationship with Ted Turner. They knew each other before outside of the wrestling business, which Jim Crockett did not. Perhaps that would have encouraged Ted Turner to put money into the company without demanding that the Jack Petrick's and Jim Herds be involved. And if that happens, that might be your pivotal play right there. If Bill Watts has Ted Turner's money at that time, without Ted Turner's cronies being involved at that time, that might be your pivotal point that maybe Watts pulls it off.
1: Yeah, I you know like I wish I could see that happening. I I think, I mean, we say this in hindsight. Maybe there's in that alternate universe Watts crashes and burns in 1986, and we're like, well, if Mid Atlantic had gone on WTBS. <laughs> But I, I, I really think that Watts would have been a better competitor against the WWF than, than Jim Crockett was. And I, and you also, we've brought this up before, but if you have Ted Turner, if you're working with Ted Turner, he's going to help you get on pay-per-view.
0: Yes. And that, you you spin that off into, at that time, I think the, the uh, pay-per-view people were like viewer's choice. And uh, there was another one. I think it started, something started with an R. My gosh, I'm getting old, John. <laughs> And that was very important, having a relationship with the one or, I think there was only two or three people, companies that were involved in doing pay-per-view. And if you didn't have a relationship with those companies, it was very difficult for you to get in as well as you saw even 10 years after that, the problems that ECW had getting on. And it was, uh, that could have very well been a problem, but it would not have been a problem hooked up with Ted Turner. The only thing, as much as I, I'm a huge Bill Watts and, and Mid South UWF fan. Uh, at the risk of sounding fanboyish, I, I love the Brian Last Mike Mills show that the Vanguard Network puts on there. I listen to it all the time; love it. But the only thing it makes me wonder is when you watch those shows out of Tulsa, their regular television show was almost like what McMahon was doing with Saturday Night's Main Event. I mean, they were loaded every week. There was two and three and four matches filled with top guys which is compelling television but may have been hard to sustain over time and probably would have been, maybe might have been hard to draw for house shows more than the first time or two that they were in a town if, if you're you're based in Tulsa Oklahoma and New Orleans Louisiana and you're coming up and say okay we're going to run Cincinnati Ohio we're going to run Milwaukee Wisconsin do you have that type of ability to draw every month or every quarter, I'm not sure that when you have that kind of television, you're given so much away. Could they have done that? I I don't have an answer for that. I love this alternate universe stuff. though. I'm all down (laughs) on that.
1: I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, the WWF, when they started having those Saturday night main events, I mean, they were still drawing when World Class was putting on main events on television every week. I mean, they're attendance was still strong. So I, I I think that's kind of been disproven. There are a lot of the older promoters like, oh, no, if you put on good matches on television, you, you won't draw. But promoters that did put on good television matches, Drew.
0: That's not what I'm saying. I guess I'm doing a bad job of expressing it. I think the problem is Mid-South, the territories, they did not have the depth of talent that McMahon did because he was buying everybody in the world. Yeah. And could you get away with that with the same 10, 12, 15 guys again and again and again? And that's probably what helps sink Crockett. It was you only had the same core group of 10, 12 guys, and you could only recycle it so much. Could Turner's money, theoretically, in a Bill Watts-led company, allow him to open the pocketbook, increase the depth? build up that depth chart, be able to do different things with different people that you didn't get tired of seeing Rick Flair versus Ronnie Garvin. Could he have done that? We'll never know, but it's interesting and fun to think about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always give Dusty Rhodes credit, credit and blame, I should say, because the blame is that Dusty used the same core of guys. When he wanted to shake things up, he turned someone, but he was in uncharted waters because the territory, you know, he grew up in the territory era where a guy would be in the territory for six, seven, eight months. And then you'd move him out and you'd bring in someone else. And like, he couldn't do that anymore.
0: Right. Exactly. And, and, and that's what I'm saying in a very ham handed way. That could be, it could have been a problem for, for Watts is you only have this core guys and you don't have that farm system to pull from. You can't call Paul Tuckett and say, we're bringing up so-and-so to bolster the outfield because Paul Tuckett doesn't exist. They're all with McMahon. And in a, in a business that even back then, as smaller territories were dying off, you didn't have the ability to bring in as many young stars that were ready to go. So therefore, when you brought somebody new and you gave somebody a chance in, you wound up with more mighty Wilvers than you wound up with talented stars. You wound up with more Van Hammers than you wound up with somebody that you could plug in. And that's my only question about it. Could Bill Watts be able to do that? And you would have to think he would have the chance, I remember back in the days when shoot interviews, even before the videos, when John, you'll remember them too, as well, the various, not necessarily Meltzer, but they would have like interviews of people. And I can't even remember the guys that did it. I think it was called Wrestling Perspective. And they had Ted DiBiase did an interview with him. And he said something along the lines of people automatically assumed that when Bill Watts came back to run WCW, that he would go down there with him because of their past association. He said, I had already been. Through hell and back. Why would I want to return? <laughs> and maybe because I mean, maybe that would have been a problem where people said, "I don't want to go through that bull again." And with Bill Watts being fined every night, and you know, maybe that would have hurt him. But uh, I think that would have been a lot of fun to think about. Where you know, if he had the money, and yet wasn't saddled with the Petricks and the Herds and the Kip Fries and all the type that wound up running WCW, could he have? Taken Mid-South to that next level? I think he could have. I'm not saying he would have, but I think he could have.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, like I said, it's one of those, you know, you, you don't have the answer. All we can do is speculate, but I think Watts would have given Vince McMahon more of a run for his money on, on several fronts. Did you know that the Pawtucket Red Sox are going to soon be moving? Yep, to
0: Worcester, Mass.
1: And they're going to be called the Worcester Woo Sox. I can't even make that up.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, minor league baseball is a train wreck to begin with. Don't get me started. This is Stick to Wrestling, John.
1: (laughs) I've been to, God, so many Pawtucket Red Sox games. I saw Mark Fidrich pitch for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Anyway, Kevin Dignam, what if Ric Flair is the big one? What if Ric Flair leaves for the WWF in 1988?
0: (sighs) Ah. I've always read that. Or I, I'm assuming we're talking about just as Turner's getting ready to buy the company.
1: Um, well, I do know this. Ric Flair was originally supposed to debut at SummerSlam 88, and for whatever reason, he pulled out. But yeah, let's let's go like SummerSlam mid-88.
0: At that time, it probably would have been a huge blow. Can you imagine them trying to run that company with Lex Luger as the champion and a company run by Jim Hurd? Ugh, difficult to think I, about. I mean, it would have been a massive, massive blow to lose the best wrestler in the world, It's particularly to the audience that you're trying to attract. And he's going to go to your competitor, and all of a sudden you've got Lex Luger looking just a little bit down the road, a year or two down the road, and you're looking at we're the PN News bunch. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not even sure... I would almost say this. If Ric Flair goes to the WWF at that time, maybe they stagger to that, the the really, no pun intended, bad stuff with PN News and Johnny B. Bad and, and all that stuff. Maybe they stagger to that point and that's the breaking point. <laughs> it's all over. I, I think it would have been that big because you, were, you had an audience that was used to seeing Ric Flair on top and delivering 30-minute, 45-minute terrific matches both on television and at the house shows and all of a sudden, you've got Lex Luger, who was in the ring at even at, at that time, maybe one step above Hulk Hogan. And who was he going to wrestle at that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if they had brought Ric Flair in in 1988, I mean, we would have seen WrestleMania four. I think it would no WrestleMania five would have been Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. My own take on it. Now, I'll give you my 1988 take, and uh, first, I'll give you my 2020 take. We now know that Ted Turner would not have purchased the company, JCP, had Ric Flair not been on board. So it it would have killed the company, dead. Like, we would have turned on WTBS at 6.05 sometime in November 1988, and they would have been showing an old movie, and probably with a crawl on the screen, you know, WCW is you know not going to be on anymore, or the company is closed, whatever they had to say, so their phones wouldn't ring off the hook. But in '88, I think I would have said pretty much the same thing that the WWF should have broken its own rules and did whatever it needed to do to get Ric Flair in the company because that would have killed JCP. Interest would have been lost on them for good, especially with Ric Flair not dropping the belt, and Vince would have never had to put up with a Monday Night War. So. Flair should have been the one exception that Vince should have said, Rick, what's it going to take to get you in this door?
0: For the WWF, I, I think it w- you're exactly right. I think it would have been, they would have saved themselves about years and years of dollars that they wouldn't have thrown away fighting a battle that wouldn't have existed. For Crockett, it probably would have been, we'd have had two or three years of a company. Here's my parallel. Crockett would have been what Vern was on ESPN. You would have kept watching this company get worse and worse, and worse, and then one day they would have this innovative idea like the team challenge series, and then you'd tune in, and it would be tonight's preseason game from the Omni between the Atlanta Hawks and the Chicago Bulls is brought <laughs> to you by. Yeah. And, I, I mean, and, and that would have been the end of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, if Flair had gone to Vince, Turner wouldn't have bought the company, and would Crockett have been able to find someone else to buy the company? I, I don't think so. If he could, he would have
0: well and, and the the one thing that you know I, I kept i keep saying Lex Luger is I would assume that if flair goes and Turner still buys the company, that means i guess that would still be dusty on top for a little while because he had to run in with uh the spike in the eye is what did him in uh so i I guess they could have tried dusty at at that particular time. But I think that would have been a short-term deal. I mean, he was already on the backside of 40. And I just don't see it ending any other way than a couple years of mediocre wrestling and a product that continues to get worse. And you're starting to see, you know how bad Vern's product was at the end when you're turning on and and they're acting like Tommy Jammer is like the new Ricky Morton. And you're seeing these, it's a collection of has-beens and never was. And it's almost embarrassing that you're watching this on a national program, I think it would have gotten to that point by the end. That's kind of how I see it playing out. For the WWF, they should have uh, grabbed Flair and put him out of business. And for Crockett, it would have been a slow descent into nowhere.
1: Well, that's the thing. Vern never ran out of money. Crockett was out of money. Crockett tried to stay in the game as long as he could. He wanted Turner to just buy a piece of the company. Turner wouldn't do it. I mean, he would have been done November or December 1988 had he not been bought out.
0: But anyway. Oh, on the one side, one side thing, John, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, don't go ahead. That's if, where you're on the if, show, man. If Vern's show was that terrible and he wasn't losing money, what would it have been if he would have been in financial straits? Well, Vern Can you imagine pay. how terrible that ESPN show would have been? <laughs> Vern,
1: Vern did not pay. That's why he, and he, he got the ESPN money, so that's why he was able to stay in the game as long as he, he did, I mean Crockett, for whatever else we might want to say about him, i mean he he paid his wrestlers a a rate similar to the w w f until eighty seven when he had to you know renege on a bunch of contracts because he just didn't have the money, but anyway,
0: Steve, can Crockett, you imagine can, can okay. you, I'm sorry, I interrupted you again, damn it no. uh I remember reading even at that particular time that not necessarily. I, that was way before my observer reading, but reading in, 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 in like legit sports magazines. That when ESPN decided to get involved in wrestling, they picked Crockett over the runner-up was Mid South. Now, there's a question for you: What if Mid South gets the Vern slot on ESPN in whatever year that was? Uh, like I said, you guys are better years than I am. Um, if if Mid South gets that slot on ESPN, the you know, 800-pound gorilla in the room of sports slash sports entertainment slash whatever, if Watts gets that spot, what happens?
1: Uh, I mean, ESPN, I, I, I pointed this out on the show before, ESPN in 1985 is not what it is today. I mean, they were running, you know, I mean, you tune in on a Friday night and you see bowling, okay? Now they have the, the college football national championship, et cetera. But, I, I mean, getting on ESPN definitely would have helped Watts, and I know for a fact ESPN paid cash for the rights to world-class and AWA, so it would have been nice getting not only that exposure, but that additional check in the mail as it was. Um. Anyway, Steve Crawford, what if Jerry Jarrett buys the AWA? Any thoughts, Sean?
0: I guess, again, I would ask, when does he buy it? Yeah. Uh, if If he buys it... Like early in the ESPN contract, we probably would have had some pretty compelling television. If he buys it anywhere from the middle point on down, I don't think anything saves it because he was kind of running a a threadbare organization anyway. As you've always said, you know, not paying anybody, you're you're going as cheap as you possibly can for an organization that was basically living off that ESPN contract. I think you would have seen a lot of Jerry Lawler, a lot of Bill Dundee, probably a better television product as far as in-ring. I'm not sure the production would have looked any better, and I'm not sure it would have lasted any longer. Uh, Probably when that contract was up, ESPN was more than happy to move along for pro wrestling. Yeah,
1: I am inclined to agree with you, and it's worth pointing out that Jarrett did buy world-class championship wrestling in late 1988, and they were on ESPN. They had a a nice syndicated network as well. And at the end of the day, it was just minor league wrestling, and people tend—it's one thing, like when, let's say in 86, when you had the WWF and you had JCP, and JCP was still seen as as being major league, maybe not as major league as the WWF, but still major league— Whereas, you know, the world-class slash AWA was clearly minor league wrestling, and people just don't get behind, you know, minor league stuff.
0: They really don't. It's like, again, I'll use a baseball analogy. I hope to hell some of your listeners like baseball, or they're going to say, please shut the hell up. (laughs) If you have a triple-A team in a city that has big league sports and other sports, they don't tend to draw as well as other triple-A towns that, like Toledo and Rochester, they draw much better than places like Charlotte or Indianapolis because they look at AAA baseball as minor league, therefore an inferior product, therefore they don't show up in as many numbers because they feel like they're getting an inferior product. And that correlates to wrestling too with uh, AWA and world class at that particular time.
1: No, that that's very fair to say. And if you do like baseball, go to the 605 page and listen to the podcast I was on, Talking Baseball with Kevin Sullivan. I was on at the beginning, and then I was on again at the end, and it was it was a good show. Congratulations to Brian Lass for putting out like seven, seven and a half hours of content uh, in a very short period of time. So if you, you like hearing me talking, you like baseball, check it out. Anyway, and there's two separate programs. There's the original one, and then he put on something called Extra Innings, and I was on at the end of the Extra Innings, but. Wanted to get that one in.
0: All right. Well, well now you're ticking me off that I wasn't invited to this, even though I've only—I wouldn't know Brian Last in person if I fell over him. But that, <laughs> <laughs> why wasn't I invited to this, Brian Last? Probably because you're a nobody. Uh, it probably would be his response. But go ahead, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Well. Anyway. Yeah. You should check that out too. It's a good time. I mean, and it's the Kevin Sullivan, not just some other guy named Kevin Sullivan. Ah. We talked about this on two shows before. We talked about this a little bit. Trip McNeely asked, what if Hulk Hogan stays in Hollywood after Rocky Three? Who's the man in the WWF? And by the way, that is not, I think, a far-out possibility that he just becomes a movie star. What, what do you think, Sean?
0: Oh, I think that definitely could have happened. If somebody would have had a reasonable action vehicle, I, I think you could have very easily seen Hulk Hogan. If your choices are, I can make more money to stay in California, or I can live out of a suitcase for every day for less money, which would I rather do? Yeah. I I think he would have jumped on that in a heartbeat if there would have been something that he could have ran with. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's very possible. And Well, you saw what happened. As soon as he started getting floated to Thunder and Paradises and and all that stuff, he was out of wrestling quicker than you could say Jackie Robinson. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, good point. And You know, there is that alternate universe when we we see like a Hulk Hogan action movie, like, wow, remember when he was a pro wrestler for like five years or whatever it was. Who do you think would have been the number one guy in the WWF had Hulk Hogan departed for Hollywood permanently?
0: Oh, wow, this is really subjective. I mean, I know a lot of people will say Snuka because he was there and so over, but you had the out-of-the-ring issues there. Kerry Von Erich was one of those that was one of the few wrestlers McMahon paid attention to that wrestled for other people. But I'm going to give you an kind of out there pick. I think it may have been, if you're looking at the people that were in the area roughly around that time, let's assume that Hogan doesn't come in to take the belt from Backlund. I might lean towards Paul Orndorf. He had the look, he had the legitimacy. He could speak fairly well. I don't think you could have pushed him to the outside of wrestling crowd the way you of course did Hulk Hogan. Because Hulk Hogan was six well advertised him at six eight. He looked more like a superhero than Orndorff, who looked like a really, really good, in shape, athletic guy. Yeah. But he came across as legitimate. I think people would have believed in him, especially At that particular time when he came to McMahon, he was coming off a babyface run in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I I think people that had watched that show would have bought him as a babyface. I might say Paul Orndorff.
1: Orndorff would probably be my number four, which means I I think very highly of Paul Orndorff. I think he could have been the NWA champion, especially right around the time you're talking about Georgia 82. He just had it. My pick... I'll, I'll be honest. It, my pick in 2020, it would have been Hacksaw Jim Duggan just ahead of Butch Reed. But my number one pick, and I'm just going to be honest here, if it's November 1983, and I'm Vince McMahon, and someone says, okay, who are you going to make your top superstar? Knowing what, the Kerry Von Eric stories weren't too crazy by November 1983. He hadn't had that infamous match with Ric Flair yet or anything like that, I would have gambled on Kerry Von Erich. Even knowing some of his issues, I would have been like, okay, this guy is so super talented. He is so charismatic. You know, Girls are crazy about him. I would have gambled on Kerry.
0: I love the Blitz-Reed pick, by the way. That is so tremendous because I remember seeing, I think it was Ernie Ladd. I want to try to give credit where it's due said, hey, look, that was a total expose for wrestling. You had African-American guys very seldom outside of Watts territory winning championship belts. Yeah. And you look at legit sports, and they, you had African-Americans that were, if not among the best in their particular sport. I think Butch Reed could have came to McMahon's territory, and it would have brought a whole new level of legitimacy to his audience. And he was good enough to carry it at that time.
1: I mean, I watched Butch Reed wrestle at the 1984 Texas Stadium show. So right at this time we're talking about, and the guy looked magnificent. He was so well built. He you know, had washboard abs. And yeah, I would have at least seriously thought about pushing Butch Reed as my version of Michael Jordan.
0: Well, you guys could edit this out if you want, because I don't know where you guys stand on mentioning other podcasts. But I know there's another podcast around that there's a big ha-ha joke about every time they mention Butch Reed's name and everybody laughs. And I've never gotten it because I've always thought the guy was great. My son's a fan, and I've told him, I said, I much prefer Butch Reed to Ron Simmons. And that's not a knock on Ron Simmons as far as – and that was a little past his prime, Butch Reed, with Doom. I think the Butch Reed that was at Mid South World Class or even Florida, my gosh, he would have been a phenomenal star. He had the legitimacy, and he would have been the first. He wouldn't have been a Tony Atlas or a Bobo Brazil. He would have came in and had credibility, wouldn't have been a gimmick, had the body and not a limited wrestling skill. He could go in the ring. And he could talk. I love that pick. I, I wish I had thought of it. I'm feeling it.
1: You know, one thing, too, I want to point out, I don't think anyone would have been a proper substitute for Hulk Hogan. I mean, no. like him or not, he was the one and only. The WWF would not have been anywhere near as big as it got with Kerry, with Orndorff, with Reed, or with Duggan, who you know would be one of my picks, but like I said, I'm not even comparing those guys to Hogan. They they made the right pick with Hulk Hogan.
0: And well, you know, Hulk Hogan looked larger than life. You know, like, exactly. like Bush Reed and Paul Orndorff are really in shape, athletic, really strong-looking guys. Hulk Hogan looked like somebody off a of comic book. Mm-hmm. And that was the difference. You were able to pull people that didn't watch wrestling. That was what they pictured a pro wrestler looking like.
1: Yeah, he was right out of a comic book, and in more ways than one. Just the look itself, the the over the top. What you gonna do, brother? Interviews, you know that that Reed or Kerry just couldn't have done. But no. You know. Robert Reigns asked, "What if Austin Idol takes the Hulk Hogan spot in 1983? What do you
0: think?" I like Austin Idol, but I think that's way above him. He had to talk, and I know Hulk Hogan certainly wasn't uh, Jack Briscoe in the ring. But I just don't think we just said it. Austin Idol was a very well-built guy, but didn't have that superhero look. He did have the talk, but uh, I don't think he's as good of the ring as the guys we just mentioned. If that was the case and they put the title on, I'm not sure that really would have worked. Uh, I'm not saying they wouldn't have got some mileage out of it, but it wouldn't have been a home run by any means.
1: No, I, I have to agree with you, and I am an Austin Idol fan. I thought the world of him, I thought he was one of the best heels in the business at the time, but I'm picturing Austin Idol like, okay, if he is in JCP, what is his role? And I'm like, could he be the world's heavyweight champion? Not in my opinion. Could he have been the United States champion? I Even I think that's a little bit of a reach. So to put him as the top WWF guy, I, I just can't say it.
0: Yeah, I, I like Austin Idol a lot. That's not a knock on him. I just, everybody reaches their level when you're floating down the river. And uh, his level was top heel in a regional territory.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you.
0: Dave Jones
1: would like to know our opinion. Who were Bruno's top three feuds?
0: Well, you have to go Larry, number one. I have Larry, uh, number one. You know, I would say uh, I'm going to go Stan Hansen, number two. It wasn't as necessarily as long as some of the others but you do have the the impact of the broken neck in, in Shea Stadium. And uh, three, I'm going to go Spirius Arian.
1: All right. Here are my top three. Number three for me was Ken Patera.
0: Number I, Patera. That was my honorable mention. I am such a Ken Patera mark. Patera and Don Morocco were probably my two favorite wrestlers as a kid. And, and I, it killed me to not put Patera in there. But Patera was, for me, was more of a, he was just all, kind of like Ivan Cole. If they wrestled so long, so long, so long, but they didn't have the peaks of Larry and Hanson. I'm sorry, John, I interrupted no, you. No, hey, I,
1: that's why I have you on, on the show, man. People not want to hear me talk to myself. Uh, but yeah, I thought Patero was great. I've expressed on this show that he could have been the NWA or WWF champion in the early 80s, and his stuff with Bruno was really good. Uh, my number two was superstar Billy Graham. Even before... They had the series of rematches after Graham won the WWF title from Bruno. They had that really good feud that started at the end of 1975 and ended right around the middle of 76. And number one, I think is obvious. I mean, the Larry's Abisco feud. We've talked about it on the show before. I mean, it was it's definitely one of the best feuds of all time. And I got to live it. I got to see the local promos not only from Boston, but from Madison Square Garden, because I, I got the show on cable, and it really, just seeing Larry Zbysko, you know, quietly, quickly go down the road to being a heel was, was fabulous. Um, Other ones I have, as the ones I missed out on, the Arion feud was a little bit before my time. Mine too. Yeah, I would have loved to see the Bruno Killer Kowalski feud, and I have heard excellent things about the Bruno Sammartino versus Gorilla Monsoon feud from the 60s. Uh, I wish I could live that, but unfortunately, none of that footage has survived. Um, Let me
0: see. We could do a top 10 Bruno and not come up with a loser.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, he was the WWF <laughs> champion for, God, what,
0: 12 and years? They, they, they fed him so many really good guys, too. I mean, I, you, know, you have the 60s stuff with Bill Watts, and then you have Ivan Koloff and Billy Graham, and Ernie Ladd in the seventies, and then all the way up to Larry. I, we could do a top ten Bruno, and still have guys in an honorable mention that we would say, "Oh damn, oh man." Yeah.
1: How did I not think of Bill Watts? That that's like the number one I wanted to see. Now I, I forgot completely about that one.
0: Bruno had so many guys. Yeah, we with that—that's a show right there for you, John. Get somebody <laughs> better than get somebody better than me to do it. But yeah, get somebody to do. Uh, Top 10 Bruno feuds, how Bruno's opponents helped make Bruno. Tremendous. Yeah. Oh, and you
1: know, when a guy didn't come to the WWF during the Bruno and Backland eras, they were almost conspicuous by their absence, as Vince McMahon used to say. You were like, oh, why didn't this guy come to the WWF? Why did, you know, Dick Slater never make it up here? It's like, you know, what happened?
0: <laughs> yeah, I love Dick Slater, but I, I, that act was never going to fly up here. Let me tell you a story. I b- promise I'll be quick. This is when Dick Slater is doing the Rebel gimmick, which is admittedly past his prime, but not that far from being the top heel at Mid-South. He comes into my town here in Hagerstown, Maryland. We're at a local high school. And they are, you know, it's a, this town always drew very well for wrestling. And the people were, it was a very big babyface crowd. Yet he was wrestling Dino Bravo with Frenchie Martin, and it was probably 50 Oh wow! We had people literally sitting around us saying, "Ah, you guys are all rooting for the quote-unquote bad guys, and we're not with you, but we're with you in this one here. We're, we're rooting against the rebel."
1: Yeah, it, it did not get over in Boston. I, I I thought that was a bad choice for a gimmick. I'm I'm talking about like you know the Dick Slater who was in Florida, like, eighty, eighty one? I was like, man, this guy would kill it up here against Backland.
0: Oh, I, I think he would have, but I, I think that the other issue is, is and I really like Dick Slater a lot, is, but what Dick Slater basically did a lot of times was Terry Funk Jr., and, and I, y- I've seen things where Slater has almost said that, and Terry Funk never wanted to come up here. Funk was
1: supposed to come up here in 1980, and I forget what happened, but He had agreed to come up and do a series with Backlund, and somehow it all fell apart. And Mark Nolte, who is no longer with us, I used to be good friends with, he wanted to know, in your opinion, would Terry Funk have gotten over in the WWF? And
0: my answer is yes. He would have have gotten over like crazy. Uh, I think Dick Slater would have been in that role, not the Rebel, because you didn't have guys like that here. It was a whole different brand of heel than the guy bumping all over the place, just like I know you uh, last week on the Facebook group, you you mentioned Buddy Rose. Buddy Rose didn't get over here, but he would have these incredible television matches that you never saw heels do on television, and it it was held against him because heels came up and they went pound, 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 squash, win. And it was held against him by fans. Oh, this guy kind of sucks. He had trouble with S.D. Jones. This guy barely beat Kurt Hennig. And that's how they looked at it here. If you were not a heel that came in and crushed Lee Wong and Jeff Craney, it it hurts you. And I wonder if Slater would have came up here trying to have good matches and bumping all over the place, whether people would have said, how can this guy beat Bob Backlund? He's barely uh, struggling by Tony Gurria. You took the words right
1: out of my mouth. That's exactly right. And we did literally hold that against Buddy Rose. We we would be like, you know, okay, this guy barely beat SD Jones on television. How is he going to beat Bob Backlund? How is he going to beat Pedro Morales? But we went to the matches anyway.
0: Well, uh, the Capital Center would send out, every month they had this little uh, flyer called Pro Wrestler. It was like a four-page flyer promoting the upcoming show and a brief synopsis of the previous show. And I of course got this to my house and buddy Rose wrestled back when one time at the cap center and quit to the chicken wing. And this was at a time when wrestling was portraying anybody that submitted as, you know, a coward, a gutless weasel, you know, not, it's not like today we're tapping out is it's not dishonorable. To tap out in an MMA match or whatever, but back then, you remember, John, if a guy submitted, oh, what a coward! What a you know what a yeah. gutless worm! And that's almost how they worded Buddy Rose, and he was like, boom, he lost that match, and he was down in the prelims after that, and then gone.
1: He also lost to the Chicken Wing at, at the Boston Garden, I believe, if I recall correctly, at the Philadelphia Spectrum. This is when Backlund first started using that hold. He stopped using the atomic drop as a finisher and went to the chicken wing. And, you know, my friends would be like, oh, like you were saying, oh, my God, you know, what a a coward he quit. I was like, dude, you know, this is a legit hold. It's either quit now or get your arm broken and then quit.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it was just it was a different time. That's just how they looked at it back then. If you quit, it was a sign of uh, as gorilla would say a lack of intestinal fortitude. He hurt
1: Rick Martel.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. And that was five, six, seven years after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he AWA champion because he submitted to Stan Hansen. That mean, meant you know he didn't have the courage to power through and and hang on and survive and d- deal with adversity and all that. It it really ruined him in this area.
1: No, same here. I mean, he lost at the Meadowlands. I. I- could have and should have gone to that show. Had I known the title was changing, I definitely would have gone. The after magazines would run him down with, you know, articles saying that the fans say
0: he's a quitter and it, it hurt him. It was just a different, a different time. Yeah. And fans in wrestling, but in other sports too, looked at things differently. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I, I know because back when just, back when really didn't use the chicken wing all that long. As champion. And I'm sure there may have been another one or two guys, but right off the top of my head, I don't remember him beating anybody else with the chicken wing at the CAP Center other than Buddy Rose. I'm open to being wrong on that because I'm an old man now, but I don't remember that. And they, I just, but I, it always stands out that his television matches were so great. And yet it, people just, Weren't worried about it. It was like, oh, God. No, it cost him credibility. And then they were trying to get back when submission moved over, which it did to a certain degree, I guess. But what it really did was ruin Buddy Rose here. Even when he came back with the Bobby Heenan thing, you could just tell when he came out, when he was going to be managed by Heenan. They remembered. They remembered Buddy Rose. Oh, that's the guy that quit the backlund.
1: Yeah, I, you know what, by then it was a, a different audience, but at the same time, I mean, you see Buddy Rose out there with Ken Patera and John Studd and Bobby Heenan, and I liked Buddy, but like you knew who the star wasn't.
0: Yes, very well put. I mean, he which one of these things don't match with the other, as they, as they said on Sesame Street? You could see that you had a very credible guy and two stars.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, you'll understand this. I mean, Roberto Duran was pretty much finished when he quit in the middle of the Leonard fight. And if you know, it's been a long time since I saw that fight. But Duran was not winning; he was getting humiliated, and he just said, "Screw it," and you know, threw in the towel figuratively. And his reputation never recovered from that.
0: Well, uh, I I don't know how much you of your uh, your audience. uh, Boxing is in my wheelhouse, and we cover it at the blog. Extensively. But hey, I, I you wouldn't really
1: say that. I promise you could plug your blog. Oh, I well, I, I, Go well, right ahead.
0: Uh, well, you can catch me at thoughtsofrs.blogspot.com. We cover the basic teams I like and we cover boxing and old school wrestling and forgotten superstars of the sports universe. And if you're interested, check it out there. I'm also on Twitter at Thoughtsofrs. But um, Duran, he eventually rebuilt himself when he fought tremendous. Toe to toe fights with guys like, you know, Davey Moore, and he went 15 rounds with Marvin Hagler, and Iran Barkley beating him for the middleweight title when he's 40 years old. But you're absolutely right. It took him years to rebuild that credibility with the boxing audience. And even then, once you got that tag slapped on you, it was always in the back of your mind could it happen again? Yep. I wouldn't go as far as to say it ruined Duran. He still had another 10 years of great fights and a deserved boxing hall of favor, but boy, it sure did make him look bad for a long time. And it was something that he always had to deal with. I mean, you always had it in the back of your mind. If he was way behind, would he just say, I had to hell with this, I'm done.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ruined was too strong a word. I will admit that, but I mean, that's what, you know, the first thing a lot of people associate with Duran was sure, the, the, the new no Moss thing. Yeah. So I'm a Duran is- guy. I wasn't going to
0: let that stand, John. <laughs> all right.
1: It has been a fast hour as usual, the fastest hour of the week. We are going to have Sean back on next week to continue with this conversation, to get everyone's questions asked. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman, our super producer of Stick to Wrestling, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.
0: This concludes our podcast day.